we have exciting news. Our book, Hope for the Best, Plan for the Rest, Seven Keys for Navigating a Life-Changing Diagnosis, is available now for pre-orders from all major retailers. And we have a special offer. Once you pre-order, share your proof of purchase with us and receive a copy of our first chapter. Visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, for retailer links and all the details. If we want to see better healthcare outcomes, what is the voice that we need to have? And it is the patient voice. Today, we are talking with Amy Archibald Varley and Sarah Fung, who are also the voices behind the Gritty Nurses podcast. We talk all about nursing, the reasons for the nursing crisis, possible solutions, and the critical role of nurses in patient-centered care and the waiting room revolution. Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Amy, Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. This is exciting. Thanks for having us. I would love to introduce you so that the audience knows you a bit more. Um, Can you just remind me, you're both nurses, but what kind of setting do you guys work in? All right. I, I guess I'll start first. So I, so traditionally I was a labor and delivery nurse. I worked at the bedside for about eight years in, in that role and then moved to onto various different roles. So I've taught, I've been a clinical educator, a professional practice clinician, and now I'm actually in a health equity role. So I'm at the health equity specialist for Niagara health at the organization at that organization. And, um, it's quite a new role. I think, um, anybody who's uh, talking about health equity right now, all of those roles are quite new new in, in Canada um, because we don't collect race-based data or, or ethnic-based data. So this is a very exciting role for me to be in, and uh, that's where I am. And uh, I'm Sarah. So similar to Amy, I started out in the maternal child world. So most of my clinical experience is in postpartum and level three NICU. And then I worked in nursing leadership for a while, also taught. I was a clinical nurse specialist. And uh, most recently, I've been working in home and community care. So uh, really just understanding what's happening out in the community and how that differs from acute care. Um, I also ventured into entrepreneurship. So now I help nurses with their careers and kind of helping them see what's out of the four walls of hospitals. You are both the co-hosts of an awesome podcast called The Gritty Nurses, and it has been ranked number one in Apple iTunes and the health category. So I would love to tell our audience, like, what is The Gritty Nurses about? Oh my goodness. So I feel like I've said this so many times, but the green nurse, it's an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. Um, We shy away from no topics. So I think one of the things that makes us different from many other podcasts is we really took on very hard topics during uh, the pandemic, which is kind of interesting because we started podcasting prior to the pandemic because we it was a it was actually a podcast that came out of necessity. One of the things that most folks don't talk about are some of the really challenging aspects of nurse, nursing in relation to healthcare bullying or nursing bullying. And myself and Sarah both had this experience, which was inter- interesting and unique because Um, It was both happening to us at the same time, but neither one of us were actually um, talking to each other about it. So we both left those roles. And uh, we, I said to her one day, I was like, you know, uh, my cousin does a podcast and I was like, you know, we felt so silenced. And I was just like, what, uh, what outlet can we have that, you know, we're going to just put it all out there. We're going to talk about mental health. We're going to talk about, you know, racism in healthcare. We're going to talk about women's rights and and equity. And, um, and we're going to talk about nursing as a profession. 
and uh, what platform can we use? So we're just like, let's do a podcast. And um, we kind of pulled it together pretty quickly if I, th- if I kind of think back. And uh, that's kind of how we got started. And we just wanted to talk about things that we weren't hearing traditionally when it came to, you know, medical or healthcare podcasts. We wanted it to be um, something that, that people could listen to and say, you know what, that, that, that happened to me too. And to really bring people's perspectives um, differently about nursing. Cause I think nursing has, a, people have an idea of what nurses do, but they don't truly understand. Yeah. And my take on it is that we talk a lot about topics that I wish had been covered in my nursing school days. So all of those things that are, maybe they're not really um, clinically based, but it's more like Healthcare and nursing is so much more than what you do at the bedside. It's about, um, you know, healthcare and politics. It's about what's happening in current events. It's about social commentary. It's about advocacy. So all those things that I think make a well-rounded healthcare professional is what we cover in more detail. And of course, we like to bring on guests and, and share their stories. So really, it's about storytelling and bringing people together and just making that connection. One of my favorite things of doing this podcast, which wasn't what I ever expected was I, every guest I'm learning something new and I feel like my own thoughts are maybe being challenged, but I'm sort of learning from my guests. So I sort of have like these personal light bulbs about, and I, and our podcast is really about serious illness and palliative care. So I'm curious as hosts of this for many years, like, are there things where you've really learned from your guests that have changed? I don't know if it's fair to say your worldview, but things you've realized that you've applied to your own, your own thinking. Yeah, I would say that there's been a lot. I mean, I think every time we have a guest on and the reason why we have guests, because um, we don't know everything. So we want to find out from the experts um, some of the topics we find really interesting. So actually just one recently that we had was we had Dr. Mark Shapiro on talking about, you know, uh, gun violence and gun safety. And we actually were kind of using this term. And I think a lot of people use this term about gun control. And he's like, oh, let me tell you why you shouldn't use gun control. And it was a huge eye-opening conversation for us as Canadians understanding, you know, even how much language matters in terms of talking about, you know, gun safety and the, and things like that. And just, I think, you know, we, it's, it's really about learning. It's, it's such a journey to have these conversations and to bring, bring folks to kind of into the fold to have these types of conversations. And I think the, the other piece is, you know, um, talking to folks in policy, politics, uh, politics. I think, um, we've seen the huge intersection of healthcare and policy. We can't ignore it now. We know that you are intertwined and it's so important for our communities to continue to have these conversations. So whenever we have lawyers or politicians or folks that are advocates within these fields, I, those, those conversations kind of give me pause to say, okay, am I doing all I can, or is there someone else I can have a conversation with about, because we do know that um, our policymakers do influence the way that healthcare is delivered here. And we need to be a part of that. And we, we have to continue having those conversations. I think um, one other guest we had on recently was uh, Tracy Zambori. So she's the president of the Saskatchewan Nurses Association or union. Um, but I think she really brought to light how very fearful and silenced nurses still feel. Although you would think that um, us having a platform and being so publicly visible that other nurses would feel this way. But if anything, there are nurses that feel more silenced due to the pandemic because there are nurses, you know, colleagues of theirs they have seen who have spoken up and unfortunately suffered negative consequences. So I think she really brought to the forefront why nurses feel this way and really what we can do about it because 
I feel like the situation isn't going to improve unless nurses get more of a voice and are able to advocate for themselves and ultimately advocate for better patient care. You know, we work in palliative care. So we have always been at, the, I'm a researcher, she's a palliative care doctor in the, at, in the community and people's homes. And we've always, people, you know, are scared of the word and we meet people too late or, you know, not enough people get access to it. And we, to change the experience, we realized we had to go upstream and redefine what is palliative care at, from the patient perspective and the family perspective and re, repackage it or, or uh, deconstruct it so that they can leach out a palliative approach to care, even if they never meet a palliative care specialist or never get referred to the palliative care you know, team. So that's what we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I, I've been listening over the past couple of weeks. And I think that um, I, I really applaud the work that both of you are doing because it's, it is kind of when we talk about like sexy medicine, palliative care would not be considered sexy, but it's so hugely important. Um, and then for me, I, my question is always about like, how do you continue to do this work from like an equity deserving lens? Because I know even just within my own family member, uh, having a family member who's palliative, there's that fear of, you know, oh, they're, they're, you know, they're going to just throw me away or they don't really care. And it's just really, how do we continue to build that support and that trust? And I think that, you know, through having conversations, like what you're doing is, is building that trust. So, uh, congratulates to you, both of you as well. Yeah, I think it's really great to just educate people on what palliative care is, because I didn't realize when I first started um, working with nurses who provided that care, that there are patients that can live months, even years after their palliative diagnosis. So it's not about necessarily someone who's actively dying, but it can actually improve their quality of life until that happens. Yeah, we talk a lot about how it's not a diagnosis or a label, although I know we use it like that in the system just because of you know, how we we pay for things, but it really should be an approach to care. And it's a lens of, a, you know, a life-limiting progressive illness. Um, and when that happens, you need to think about the whole person. And so to Amy, your point about the, you know, how uh, health inequity and social justice, like, I think the heart of a palliative approach is information and personalizing care in a system that is, you know, like a conveyor belt or, um, and it's meant to just sort of put you through the machine. So when we can understand who the person is and what is important to them, which could connect to all parts of what makes us human, our ethnicity, our gender, but our our relationships, our religion, our beliefs, our values, all of that, every person is unique. And I think as nurses really understand that. So I think bringing your personhood and what your values are to the healthcare system is what really the heart of palliative care is about. And then in the context of this being your final chapter or, or of life, which could be long and it could be short, what does that mean for you? And how do we help you live the best you can for as long as you can? So um, it's, it, you know, I, and we've been doing work with First Nations and others, or I have in my research and it's been eye-opening and I've been learning, but I think I see how it can be, it can be done. We can personalize care if we just stop and ask different questions and not make it so technical and make it more relationship-based, which is what we want. And I think what you guys are saying is what's missing in nursing is it's become so, you know, you're overworked. And so you don't have the time to make those relationships. Yeah, that is definitely uh, the most important part. And I, and I hope, I believe that we'll, we'll get there to a point where we can really all have those conversations with our patients, our friends, our family members. Um because right now it is a, it is difficult. And, but the thing is, I think if we can, we need to do the best we can. You know, what our podcast is 
waiting revolution. And our focus is on improving the patient and family experience for those facing a serious illness or a life-changing diagnosis. So I'm curious from you know your own experiences and from your podcast, are there uh, things that you've learned of, of how nurses can improve the patient and family experience for those with serious illness? Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, it's kind of, we kind of started off with kind of talking about guests and it brings another guest to mind that we had, and it was really learning about that patient perspective. So we had uh, Sue Robbins come on to our podcast. I think she's actually been on your podcast as well. And um, just having that perspective, because I think we sometimes have an idea like this is how we've learned to deliver care and this is how we should do things. And we really sometimes forget that we are dealing with another individual at the other end of the table, right? And really hearing that patient's voice and that patient perspective every time gives me pause, especially with my background in quality improvement. It's like, okay, if we want to see better healthcare outcomes, what is the voice that we need to have? And it is the patient voice. So every time I kind of think about what I'm doing, whether it's health equity work, whether it's going to a speaking engagement, whether it's ha just having a conversation, I always want to try to bring in that other perspective and try to learn from that other perspective and really understanding what patient voice means to my own practice, especially that I'm doing work from an equity seeking, or I should say equity deserving lens and the, the importance of that, that, that voice. And we can't, we can't forget about it. So that's definitely something I, I've taken away. Yeah. And we actually did an episode earlier in our podcasting days. It was about what types of um, professions make the worst patients and nurses are at the top. I'm not going to say anything about physicians, but I will say as a nurse, we are the one of the worst for sure. Um, but I think it's just about when you're, you're not really aware of the issues until you're on the other side. And if you don't get to that other side, it's hard for you to understand that perspective. So working um, with nurses in home and community care, there are a lot of patients who are palliative and really at the end of the day, most patients want to be at home. They don't want, they don't want to live out their last days in the hospital. They want to be at home where they're comfortable. It's actually much more cost-effective and it's meeting their needs better. So I think really just asking patients what they want um, is so important, sometimes overlooked. We think, you know, in healthcare, it's so prescriptive. We need to follow this care plan or this um, order set, but sometimes we forget at the end of the day, there's a patient there who also has a voice and has a say, and we really need to involve them a bit more. And I don't think it necessarily takes more time to do that. Yeah. I was going to actually add to, to what you said, Sarah, too. Like, we, I think even as podcasters, we do a lot of talking and it's really doing, we need to do a lot more listening too, right? So what are, what are the voices that we need to hear? What are, what are we missing from, you know, being the ones that are having these conversations? What is it that we need to pull back and just, just listen to? Because I think that, you know, uh, sometimes we miss these very, very critical, important conversations because we're talking over or talking too loud. And it's, it's, you know, the people who are coming to care that are saying, Hey, look at me, I actually am trying to tell you, this is what I need to from my care providers. And sometimes we miss that opportunity. So really trying to hone in on that listening uh, aspect a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, when I think back, I feel like what we've heard from patients is it's the nurses more so than the doctors that have the very close patient contact and the time to really get to, to, to know their, uh, to build that therapeutic relationship. And I think nurses have a critical role in um, not only, you know, healing, but in empowering and coaching patients to know and families to know what information they need and how to take the next steps. So I, you know, I think maybe the question is really what prevents, what are the barriers are in place that prevent nurses from 
really fulfilling the full scope of their of their knowledge to be able to be healers and and to really you know be part of the system I think you hit the nail on the head with why nurses are so frustrated right now, because the way that healthcare is unfolding and everyone is so short staffed, what you just mentioned about being present and being there for the patients, a lot of nurses feel like they can't do that right now because they're often caring for double their workload. And so when push comes to shove, you've got to give that medication, you've got to get that procedure done. And all of that precious time that should be building the relationship kind of gets pushed aside. I was going to say, how much time do you have? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's one we could talk a, a lot about. And I think, you know, you're hearing some of the conversations from like the political standpoint too, talking about things like Bill 124 here in Ontario that caps nurses wages at less than 1%. And then it's not just about the money, but it's also about, you know, staff, safe staffing ratios. I think um, I remember when I, we, ha- we had a nurse, I believe she actually worked in Florida, but she was, she, I think she worked in California and she's like, oh, you know, we have, we have like a regulated nursing ratios. And I was like, what is that? And it's essentially, it caps nurses ratios with patients. to like one to four and anything over and above that is unsafe. And they can, re- well, not just refuse unsafe work, but the, the employer has a right to make sure that there's enough staff working that day. And these are some of the things that like we hear, we're like, oh my goodness, like there's, there's other ways to do this here. And I think that we, we should be thinking about innovative solutions, making sure that at the end of the day, it's really about patient quality care and patient safety. And I think what you're seeing is the moral distress that many nurses have where we know that we are overworked. We know that we're doing more and more with less and less. And, um, the concern is that, you know, we're not meeting the standard of care. And I think that's the hardest piece of every time going in for your 12 hour shift that you know that that patient's not going to get that conversation that might, you know, allude to the fact that maybe their incomes, you know, income might be a, a, a challenge or that, you know, housing security might be an issue or, you know, these other social determinants of health. We don't have the time to have those other conversations to find out those other factors that might be impacting their health. So, you know, corners get cut, errors happen, things get missed. And this is the system that we're working in. And you're seeing all across the globe, nurses are now taking stands to make differences, not just for themselves, but for the patients that they're serving. You both have talked a lot about the state of nursing. And so I'm so glad to, you know, to learn from you. So I have a couple of questions that are sort of, um, I don't know if they're hot topics, but they're things that people, uh, you know, that you might read about as solutions. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So one of them is, you know, there's a nursing shortage, you know, what are the barriers to just bringing more nurses from abroad to Ontario um, to, to, you know, to fill in some of those gaps? Well, I, I would say probably the first reason why that might not be the best thing to do is because there are pulling a nurse from another country that probably has either the same problems or worse problems is actually not a viable solution. We'll put other countries at risk by doing this. Like there are a lot of nurses that are actually working in refugee camps across Ukraine, across various different places. And now if we are trying to recruit them, whether it's through monetary means or whatnot, we're pulling them from places that they actually really need to be not saying that they don't need to be here, but we're better resourced than there are in like war-torn areas or areas that, you know, um, are underserviced with having nurses. So that's my first concern always to say, okay, you know, 
it'd be great to say, okay, we'll have all these nurses come from another country, but then we have to be cognizant and aware of what are, what's the state of nursing and healthcare in that country as well. So I kind of put a big X to that where I think we should be looking at what are some of the folks that we already have here in Canada and looking at the bureaucracy and the licensing and what causes um, those types of barriers and looking to kind of open up those floodgates first. Yeah, I, I really look at it as a situation of um, robbing Peter to pay Paul. So it's not really, it's not addressing the root cause of the situation. We really need to make the workplace better for nurses to retain the nurses we already have. It's going to be much more cost effective to keep nurses where they are than to bring somebody from another country. Then you have all these immigration issues to deal with. You have to train them up again. It's not quite as simple as you think, even, even for someone that is coming from the States. Like I think there's a huge process they have to go through. And like Amy said, it's just leaving those countries even worse off than they already are. And I kind of wonder, like, if, say, you brought a nurse over here and he or she didn't like the working conditions and quit anyway, then that's that's an even huger loss. So what are your, some of your ideas for how we should retain nurses? What could we do? What's on the top of your list of how we could strengthen the profession, make it more attractive and retain people? Yeah, I, I'd probably start with even like here, just specific to Ontario, probably repealing Bill 124. <clears throat> and then really looking at those other buckets. So like safe patient ratios, uh, nurse to patient ratios. What does the, what does that look like? I think you would, you would see nurses actually come back into the profession if you, they saw regulated numbers. Because one of the things that we talk about is, is burnout. And burnout is not just because, you know, oh, we're overworked or we're stressed or we're, we're, we're sad about our workload. It's because we are put in, situations that are it's it's like a crisis crisis mode every time we're going to work and that wears on that wears on the individual you can't go to work every day feeling like you're in a crisis you just won't want to keep going so I think something simple like that just changing the ratios and making sure that organizations are held accountable to make sure that they have the correct staffing is another piece um I would probably say that you know um having nurses at certain seats of having a voice and having a say. I think that um, when I think back to even three years ago and uh, when Sarah and I first did our first media uh, interview, frontline nurses didn't really talk to the media. It was mainly like nursing organizations. It was the same faces that you'd see often. And um, nurses felt silenced and were very fearful. But the thing is, if you give them opportunities to, you know, be in politics, to be in various different tables, to help make decisions, I think that we can see some innovations and change within healthcare. Yeah. And just building what, on what Amy said, like, I think safe ratios are, they're almost like this pipe dream that we're afraid to dream of because we're not sure if that will ever happen. Like, it's just one of those things where more than the pay, more than anything else, it's just being able to provide the care that you want to and not feeling like your license is on the line every time you go to work because you're in a situation that is just unsustainable. I think also looking at more practical solutions, like uh, more flexible scheduling and staffing like there are so many nurses who have children who can't find childcare, and they end up either leaving the profession or not sleeping during their uh, days off because they're trying to balance everything and I really wish there was and I think there could be more innovative solutions that we need to look at to keep people in the workforce working something that makes more sense to them in terms of work-life balance. Yeah, and I think uh, Dr. Liga LaFontaine had mentioned this national licensing ship. I think that's actually a great idea that, you know, 
instead of just, you know, you have to get an Alberta license, you got to get this license, just like national license. So, you know, you can have that movement and that flow and have ebbs and flow within Canada. I think that's actually a great idea. You know, I'm curious, do you think one of the main barriers to the field is that there are times when nurses aren't able to speak in a united voice because there are just so many different types of nurses. There are RNs or registered nurses, RPNs, which are registered practical nurses. There's nurse practitioners or NPs and advanced practice nurses, etc. I mean, is this part of the challenge too? Oh, absolutely. I think that there's so much infighting within nursing that it is ridiculous. So just for context, Amy and I are both RNs, so we're both registered nurses, but then a registered practical nurse has different training. So they um, are typically able to take more stable patients where an RN could take more uh, unstable patients. And then a nurse practitioner has even more additional training where they can provide things like ordering tests and prescriptions and actually having a caseload. So I think it's just I just, I don't know what the answer is. I, I think it's just working better together, understanding each person's scope of practice a little bit more and knowing that it's not us versus them. Like we're all on the same team, but I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of politics, right? Because there's a difference in pay. There's a difference in opportunity, but really we're just trying to be able to provide the care that everyone needs. And we really need to work together and not work in silos. Yeah, I mean, there's not much more I can expand on in terms of what Sarah said, but I think it's also just um, making sure that, you know, we are playing to our, our scope of practice and actually, you know, using it to the full capacity because there are, I have to be honest, there are some RPN colleagues that I've met that are superior and they can do so many great things and, and we kind of limit some of the abilities that they have and I think that this critical juncture where, you know, um, we, we're having a primary care crisis, we have a crisis within the hospital, there's like all sorts of different pox- pockets where we need to, you know, fulfill um, healthcare needs like home care, uh, palliative care, like you had mentioned, we really need to start thinking and being innovative. Um, and we really need to start pe- using folks' skills right to the to, right to the maximum of their, their ability, because at the end of the day, we, we need to see different healthcare. We need to see it very differently in terms of how it's being delivered right now. And what was working, what, what we did before was not working and we have to change. And some of that change might mean shifting power, which is always very scary (laughs) whenever it comes to saying, Hey, you know, we're going to let this individual do this as well. There's always fears of, does this person have the knowledge, skill, and judgment to do this? Are they certified? All these different kinds of questions, but there is also that play of hierarchy and power. And we might have to give some of that up to see some change. I would be remiss if I didn't get to talk about race and uh, sexism. So this is something that you guys talk about on your show, racism in healthcare. What is it like being female and people of color who are working in an already a, a challenging field? Well, I think I can just start by saying like when Amy and I first met, we were in nursing leadership, right? So we would look around and realize that we were the only racialized people in the whole auditorium when we used to have meetings across the hospital. So I think that um, we don't see that diversity play as we go up the ladder, so to speak. Um, I also think that in terms of patients, we don't we don't understand the full patient experience from a cultural perspective. So for example, there are so many patients that don't speak English, but do we really help them navigate the system properly, knowing that they can't understand the language, they can't read what we give them. I find that 
um, just even having family members that don't speak English, if there isn't someone to advocate for them, they just fall through the cracks. Um, I know that when I first started nursing school, this was when SARS had kind of started and, you know, came and gone. And I experienced racism just being Asian because people thought that I was bringing SARS or that I had SARS. And then so many years later, I kind of saw that come up again with COVID. So I really think that it's something that still is perpetuated and we really need to be advocating for better treatment of all groups. Yeah, again, I, <laughs> there's such a huge and very interesting history in terms of medicine and nursing that I think that our our, our, our educational background do not touch on. And I think that those, some of those things continue, continue to be at play while we're, you know, working and going about our daily lives. We have to talk about, you know, systemic inequity, systemic racism, and where some of our thoughts and perceptions come from and how that actually interplays with the way that we deliver care. And I think that, um, again, like you're, you're right, we'd be remiss to say if we don't have these conversations, because um, unfortunately, it does impact care. We've seen the cases of, you know, John River, or um, Brian Sinclair, Joyce Ejiquan, Susan Moore from the States, we've seen those impacts. And now it's time to actually do something. But that also means we need to go back and look at what education we had as nurses, as physicians, as people in healthcare, because we didn't talk about unconscious bias. We didn't talk about implicit bias. We didn't talk about, you know, racism being a social determinant of health. So it's really kind of getting a lot of people up to speed. And I'd say the hardest part is it's all, it's all internal work. It's all looking at oneself saying, how did I think about that patient? Or how did I perceive that patient? Or what things in the media or news have I seen that makes me think that way about that individual, whether it's mental health, whether it's about their their race or whether it's about their gender and, and really having those internal conversations. And, and, and that's the hardest part, but it's such a important part because I think, I personally think that we can definitely do care differently and we can see such better healthcare outcomes for racialized folks. And we, we need to do this work because the evidence shows that there are those disparities. And then again, as a racialized nurse, I've been in positions where um, I've had people say really horrible things to me. And, um, and it's really hard because sometimes you don't have that other person who looks like you to have those conversations. So looking again within your own workforce, whether it's diverse, whether it's inclusive, whether it's equitable, and that's another area that we have to focus on. How do we make sure that our environments um, have people that look like us so we can have these conversations to feel, you know, supported. So again, hugely important conversation, and I am definitely here for it. How, do you have, maybe through your work and through your own advocacy, like what are some of the solutions that organizations can look to or use that help to bridge from where we are and where we need to get to? You mean from like an equity lens? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I know I hate to say this, but of course, my quality improvement hat comes on and we know that the base that education is kind of the lowest form in terms of change management but there is some fundamental education that just has to happen to so people have an understanding of one their own biases because I think that you know you have that explicit bias where you can catch yourself and go oh yeah that was like not right or that that thought process wasn't right but it's more those unconscious ones that we have to think about and train ourselves out of and that is an educational component. But again, there are ways to force function, right? There are certain things within our healthcare system that we can, we can actually remove and change by forcing the function. We know that usually by doing that, you can make some meaningful change. Um, one of the things I, I kind of had some 
some questions about were things like EGFR, seeing that our hospital has identified that, you know, um, we know that race is a social construct, not a biological one, but why are we still using race as a marker to adjust or recalculate rates? Or even looking at things like breast cancer, um, we know that Black females tend to have more aggressive cancers, but we, we've set the rate to, um, you know, screening at 50 when we see cancers in this, these populations earlier at as early as 40. So really looking at how we can change certain pockets of the system to make it make it equitable for everybody because you know we see that lifespan disparity we need to make those types of changes. And I think Sorry. also um, adding adding race-based data is going to be really important because this is something they already do in the states. So we should be doing the same in Canada. How do we know if there's a problem, if we're not collecting the data. And I think seeing this speaks to your research kind of brain, like we need the hard data. And if we don't have it, then how will we actually make improvements? Yeah. I've always wondered why stats can, we should just put it in there. It's probably the most, you know, the next most important thing that we're putting in there, in my opinion. Yeah. It's it's just, it's just not easy. Right. I think the, um, it's not, it's not, I think people think it's as simple as saying, uh, what's your ethnic background and it's not, (laughs) there's so much more work that goes into it than, and even preparing communities for asking those types of questions. Right. I think that again, historical context is important. Understanding what has happened in our history where, you know, um, certain cultural groups might be fearful of research, um, rightfully so. Um, and really making sure that the community has understanding that this is actually going to be something that will benefit you and making sure that we involve them in those those conversations so has it been a challenge you know doing this in a very public way has that um how has that affected your life i guess in positive and maybe perhaps negative ways i'd say in terms of positive ways we're able to reach folks that we probably never would have dreamt that we would have been able to reach i mean i think that um the fact that um, as a nurse, I can continue to do media is is insane. So like even this weekend, I'll be on CBC, The Conversation, just talking about random, well, not random, we're, this week I'll be talking about um, uh, tip inflation. But just the, to be able to share my perspective, I, I don't think that would have ever been able to happen if we didn't start having conversations. So there's a positive aspect because you're now seeing nursing in a different light, right? Um, you don't traditionally see nurses in the media, but now it's giving other folks a different perspective and seeing that, you know, nurses can have conversations about other things other than just healthcare. Um, the downside, uh, <laughs> trolls, trolls, trolls. Um, and I, I've had people um, threaten me. <laughs> um, and I think journalism just is a, is a different broad piece right now. Like I think um, podcasting is still considered some form of, of, of media and journalism. And um, journalists are being targeted kind of a little bit. And it's, it's, uh, it's really hard to be in that space where at the end of the day, I'm, I'm a storyteller, I'm a truth teller. I want to expose or, you know, demonstrate awareness. Um, But it's really hard when there's, when it's packed full of uh, misinformation and other folks are bringing misinformation. And that is, I'd say, probably our biggest challenge right now for, for anybody who's out there doing any work in terms of healthcare, that um, it's really dispelling that misinformation. Um, And that's probably the biggest challenge right now. Mm -hmm. I'd I'd say one of the positives is that knowing that nurses look up to us. So especially nursing students, uh, newer nurses, they actually listen to our podcast closely and they really, they really care about what we have to say. So knowing that I'm able to influence someone's viewpoints or even what they do as a nurse is really um, empowering. And 
even just uh, this past week, I was doing a, a talk with Dr. Alika Lafontaine, and he actually said at the end, he's like, so when can I come on your podcast again? So that was really exciting to me because I was like, okay, we're, we got to have you on again. I think this is what you're saying. So um, just even knowing that people outside of nursing are listening is really great because when we first started this podcast, I didn't know what to expect. I thought I'd be doing a podcast for fellow nurses, but it's turned into so much more than that, which is a great thing. Um, but like Amy said, the downside are trolls. Um, just now that we know so many people are listening, sometimes there's pressure to put on um, podcast episodes that we think people will resonate with. And then really, it should just be about what we want to talk about. But sometimes it does have that kind of um, sense of responsibility attached to it. I totally get that. So we're almost out of time. Um, my final question is, what gives you hope for the future? That's a great question. I think that the fact that people are still listening and they want to hear what we have to say means at least there's interest in healthcare and improving it. So the way that we structure our episodes is that, yes, we do talk a lot about heavy topics, which can kind of leave you feeling down, but we always end with some tangible takeaways. So something that the average person can do to improve the situation or raise awareness or whatnot, that gives me hope because it means there is always something we can do no matter what situation you're in. And the fact that um, organizations are still reaching out to us because they care what Amy and I have to say so that um, like Amy said recently our voice is the most powerful thing we have and if we can share that with the world then that's great and we'll continue to do so because people need to hear this um, they need to hear these stories they need to learn and they need to really think about what it means to improve the healthcare system and, and do better. Yeah I mean I, I would have never uh, thought or imagined that folks would look at myself and Sarah as thought leaders um, or change makers. And I think that um, that just means that other people can do this work too. It doesn't just have to be us. There are other people that can be a part of this change. And I think that's kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a community that cares about politics, that cares about their health, that cares about other people, because that's the other thing that I, that is super important at this point in time. And if we can continue to build that community, if we continue to build spaces where people are open up and have conversations that we're doing the right thing. And um, I can't see it. I can't say that we're going downhill. So I, 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 I do have hope that um, we'll continue to see change and progress. Well, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and your insights and learning from you. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, waitingroomrevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Sivak. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza.